welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning, friends. My name is Micah. I'm the lead pastor here at Awaken. It's been a big week. Um, my car got hit in the parking lot at Office Max. You guys ever have that happen? It was just sitting there. Somebody hit it, just ran right into it. So half of my bumper's in my trunk. That's great. Uh, we, got a new, we got a new piano, guys. We got a piano for the, for the church. Yeah, you know, figured, figured it would look good here. So, uh, no, um, Tim and Susan Kephart are actually our artists in residence for the month of February, so uh, they're going to be uh, playing before a little prelude and postlude music for you all. Uh, in fact, we have an organ prelude and postlude planned for this month's artists in residence, so you're not going to want to miss that one. I'm not sure what... Did you know there's an organ in this building? Some of you did. Many of you didn't. It's up, it's up here. We actually lost the key to it at one point. We couldn't find the key to the organ. And we found later that there's a small little trap door for keeping things such as keys. It was right there in the key holder. So that's awesome. But we have two keys, one that works and one that doesn't because we had it re-keyed. So, um, <laughs> which, which, of course, you found the key that, w- that used to work as soon as you got it re-keyed. Absolutely. Um, but uh, couple, two things I want to just let you know about before we jump into Mark in terms of events. Uh, February 28th and March the 6th, they're Sunday nights. And I'm sort of couching these uh, in, in the, the phrase or the, the title, Conversations That Matter. So uh, over the next couple of months, there, there have been a number of things that have kind of bubbled up in the community um, around some different conversations that people are wanting to have at Awaken. Um, and so I'm confirming the 28th, uh, hopefully this is a confirmation, but uh, a good friend of mine, a church planter named Paul, is going to hopefully come and lead us in a conversation about race and diversity and what it means to be a predominantly white church and how we might respond to issues that are happening in our culture in a way that's actually constructive and helpful. So I figured um, somebody other than me ought to lead that. Uh, and so that'll be the 28th. And then March the 6th, uh, a, a friend uh, named Tuzier, who planted a church in St. Paul, has put us in touch with a gal who's going to lead a workshop on basically leveraging art and storytelling for the purpose of justice. Um, so photography and screenwriting and film and uh, drawing and things like that, leveraging those things for the purpose of justice. She works with trafficked women in Africa. And so that'll be cool. So just put those on your calendars, 28th and 6th, they're coming. Sound good? Okay, if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 8, I'll invite you to stand, and we will read starting in verse 22. It says this, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? Because that's totally normal. He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
which had to be hilarious. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and rebuked Peter, he said, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have the mind of the, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God that has come in power. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what what to say, for they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, and they no longer saw anyone with, with them except Jesus. Pray with me. God, as we uh, spend this time together and uh, set it aside, um, it's my prayer and my hope that uh, we would come as honestly and as authentically as we can that we would bring whatever is in our hearts into this space, and that you, in only the way that you can, would meet us where we are, would invite us towards things that are life-giving, towards things that that will bear fruit, uh, that you would be honest and gentle with us, that you would invite us to be more and more and more what it means to be human. Um, God, I pray that uh, you would take whatever is said here today, whatever is sung, and that you would invest it with your power, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Uh, I pray these things in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So as a Bible guy or gal, if you were such a person, this passage is sort of like quintessential. This is Mark's gospel, right? It's about 16 chapters long and it's really divided into two parts. And since we're talking classical music here today, this is sort of the crescendo of the first movement of Mark's symphony. If Mark is in two parts, and this is the first part, this is really the kind of building, 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 big moment where everything sort of comes together. He's been talking about these different themes which we've discussed over the last couple of weeks. If you're new, we're in this series where we've been walking through Mark's gospel. Uh, We've been following the narrative lectionary. And so Mark has been talking about these different themes, and it's at this moment in chapters 8 and 9 where they all just sort of come crashing to a head. You have Jesus as the new Israel or the true Israel. You have this group of people that are now being invited by Jesus to follow as a new kind of Israel, right? Twelve new disciples for twelve old tribes. You have this group of people, this new Israel, who are not only being invited to follow Jesus, but who are invited into a new kind of exodus, right? They're invited out of the town to be baptized by John in the river, just like the Israelites went through the Red Sea. I mean, all these things are coming together, and this is all being led by Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, and who will eventually be, in a couple of chapters, the rightful Lord of the world. It's sort of the Super Bowl of Sundays. (laughs) Oh, 
ball. Is there a game? Is there a game today? Something they're gonna like throw a ball around or something like that? All in favor of Denver? Okay. All in favor of the Panthers? Yeah. Wow. All who don't care? Hey, there we go. <laughs> and welcome to Awaken, everybody. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I am really excited about this game, actually. I'm very excited about Cam Newton and the Carolina Panthers. I'm just, it's going to be a great game. So that's the last uh, reference I'll make to a sports game today. This is a big, big moment in Mark's gospel, though. It is, it's really, it's the hinge of the whole story, and it all comes together here. So let's go. Mark, as he did last week and a couple of weeks before, does all of this in these two in this little section by combining two stories. A story about a man who's healed in Bethsaida and a story about the disciples and Peter, uh, which, which many of us have heard and know. Um, these two stories, they're basically, they, they play off of each other. They speak to each other. They're almost mirror images of each other if you think about it, right? Uh, in both stories, the subjects are, bo- are led outside of the villages. The blind guys led outside of Bethsaida. The, the, the disciples are led outside of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, in both stories, there's two movements or two questions. The blind guy sees something first, but it's blurry. They're like trees walking around. And then he sees clearly. The disciples see Jesus as part of this kind of story that's unfolding with the Elijah, John the Baptist, and Moses. And then they see him clearly for who he is, the Messiah. Um, both stories end by Jesus saying, keep it down, like be quiet, which is a whole, that's a whole interesting take on, uh, it, it happens often in Mark. It's like, I think the fourth time we've heard it in just eight chapters, Jesus tells somebody, don't tell anybody what's happening here, be quiet. And then both stories uh, essentially have at the center, seeing something clearly for what it is. So I want to walk through this passage this morning and try to offer a couple of thoughts from what we've read. First, I would say it may be this way, and, and we've, we've touched on this before, but Mark keeps coming back to it, and it's really about this question of, who do you think Jesus is? Lots of different ideas, lots of different theories about this Messiah, or this would-be Messiah, named Jesus. Now, if you didn't know this about the first century, there were all kinds of people who thought they were going to be the Messiah. And there were all kinds of sort of little uprisings of followings where they thought, this is the one, he's the one. The one being the one that God has promised from the Old Testament who will come and restore Israel. So people would say, this is the one, this is the one. And then they would kill him, and then they would know he wasn't the one, right? And then another one would rise up. There were all kinds of Messiahs, would-be Messiahs. And so there's questions about, who is Jesus? And is he really the one? Now, in first century ancient Israel, there were three things that you thought God would do when he returned. Number one, you assumed God would bring you back from exile because you as a people have been exiled literally in another land for years and years and years and years. And while you might be living in Jerusalem, you're still in exile psychologically. The Romans are there. They're standing guard at your, uh, standing, uh, guard at your gates and you're still really in exile. So you assume God would return you, the people, from exile. In doing so, God would return to Zion or return to the temple. And the temple would sort of return to its, its glory days of old. So re- return from exile, return back to the temple, and then essentially that you would, you would judge or do away with the pagan oppressors that were the Romans. Now, there were lots of people who thought God might do this in different ways. Some thought God would do it as, as sort of a military effort where he would sort of rise up against the Romans and kick them all out. Some thought it would be more of a political thing where essentially the, uh, the 
this, this Messiah figure would stand up against the tyranny of Rome and the sort of the, the vassal kings of, of the empire that were subjecting you to all sorts of taxes and certain other things. Some thought it was a, a religious overhaul of the temple and of the, the corruption that happened there. Now, it's so comforting to know that with 2,000 years of history and hindsight, we all agree on who Jesus is now. <laughs> right? I mean, in Jesus' day, there were all kinds of beliefs about who this guy was, and I would submit to you that here this morning, as we sit on February whatever it is, 2016, if I were to just poll the audience or we were to go to the mall, does anybody go to the mall anymore? If you were to go to the mall and just ask people, what do you think of Jesus or who was Jesus, you would get all kinds of answers, all sorts of disagreement. And so I want to just ask this morning, as simple as it may sound, Who do you think Jesus was? I don't assume to know where you've come from this morning or what got you here or what you brought through the doors. Some of the common responses, of course, is that Jesus was a great teacher. He was a prophet of ancient Israel, killed by the Roman Empire. Some would say that Jesus is some sort of cosmic archetype for what it means to be like the exemplar human. You know, he sort of set the example for what it means to be human. This mythic character. Some would say that Jesus is, uh, well, Jesus becomes ammunition for whatever political or religious fight they've engaged in. You know, the sort of silver bullet. And I'm not talking about tapping the Rockies here. Come on, man. I am on a roll. On a roll. For some people, he's a uh, uh, get out of hell free card. You know, Jesus is sort of like fire insurance. Like if. if you know, maybe I'll just say yes to that and so that I don't have to go to hell later. For some people, it's the name by which you pray. For some, it's, and others, it's the name by which you swear. Who is Jesus? Mark makes the claim that Jesus is nothing short of the Messiah of Israel and then the one that the scriptures have predicted and prophesied would come and rescue Israel and humanity, and then in his death and resurrection will become the rightful Lord. By Lord, I just mean king, like uh, that, the, the person who, who's fit to rule and reign. He's the world's true Lord, as Paul says, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So I would just stop this morning and ask, what do you say? Who do you say Jesus is? I was just in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and I love Chicago for a couple of different reasons, but one is that it's the location of the day that I really decided to follow this Jesus. Like, uh, that's the day that I haven't looked back from. If before that I sort of grew up in the church and I knew all the answers at youth group and I was kind of the youth group mascot, I went on all the trips and, and everything, this was the moment in Chicago where I saw myself as clearly as I had seen myself ever and God as clearly as I had seen God in that moment. I saw myself for what I was, which was a hypocrite. Someone who said I believed certain things and and acted a certain way when I was at church or when I was around certain people. And then when I went and played hockey or was in the locker room or any other things you can imagine. Two totally different people. Two-faced. Mask on Sunday, mask on somewhere else. They're really, the true self was, was this person, but this was sort of an act. And in that moment in Chicago, I saw myself clearly for what I was. And I I felt and heard an invitation from God, from this Jesus, to say, will you trust me? And will you follow? Will you trust me for the things that you think you need? 
and the direction you think you ought to go, will you trust me to lead that process and to be what many would say, what the scriptures would say, Lord? In the ancient world, they would say Caesar is Lord. He's the one who has the rightful place to rule and reign over the empire. He calls the shots. And the scriptures offer a different story. And they say, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. By that, he's the rightful ruler and he's the one who has the authority to call the shots. And the invitation is to see him clearly for who he is. And so I I can't preach a passage like this and pass this up because I think it's just dead clear. Jesus says to Peter, who do you say I am? And of course, in that great moment, Peter says, you're the Messiah. And then in the next moment, you know, like, get behind me, Satan, because Peter, of course, stands in the way of what Jesus is up to. We'll talk about that in a second. But I just want to ask this morning, who do you say Jesus is? And this conversation about who Jesus is leads Mark right into this next exchange between Jesus and Peter. And so for those of you who have answered that first question and maybe would say you follow Jesus, this next part is for you. And I would say it maybe this way. The reality of Jesus, the essence of Jesus, the true nature of Jesus is often at odds with who we want him to be or think he should be. Immediately after Peter answers the question correctly and sees Jesus clearly, he begins, Jesus, begins to teach them exactly what that means. Peter says, you are the Messiah, you are the Lord. And Jesus says, okay, friends, now here's what that means. He says, in effect, you know who I am, and correctly, by the way, here's how it works. The Son of Man, which is me, remember Daniel 7, this figure who will be oppressed and then God will vindicate and give the keys to the kingdom. That's me. I'm the Son of Man. Essentially, I'm going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead, which had to be a little bit of an acid trip for the disciples, right? Because most of the would-be messiahs died and never came back to life. And Jesus is like, here's what's going to happen. So do you guys remember Tommy Boy? You remember Tommy Boy, the movie, right? It's like they're cow tipping. He's like, okay, guys, it's a 32 belly option. Now you get between the shoulder and the udder and you push. And they fall over. I imagine Jesus like gathering up his disciples and saying, okay, guys, now that you know who I am, here's how this works, okay? The Romans are in charge. They're standing guard at your gates. The promise of God hangs in the balance, and here's what's going to happen. They're going to try me for crimes that I didn't commit. They're going to convict me of it. Then they're going to hang me on a cross, and I'm going to die. Which is, you can imagine why Peter's like, what in the world? That's the dumbest idea ever. You don't overthrow tyrant kings by dying at their hand. Like, I'm not sure what political science class you went to, but you must have failed. Because this is a terrible idea. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Which begs the question, like, why such a strong response to this poor guy who's just trying to figure out what in the world's going on here? He likens him to Satan himself. Anything that opposes the movement and nature of the kingdom of God and how it works in the world is a function of the enemy and leads to death, not life. Anything that opposes the the kingdom of God and the nature of how it works in the world is a function of the enemy and it leads to death, not life. Why does Jesus respond so sharply to Peter? Because Jesus or Peter is opposing the very nature of the kingdom and the way it works in the world. And that way of living always and only, according to Jesus in the scriptures, leads to death, not life. 
So he cuts it off at the chase. I want to suggest that Jesus often confronts our expectations and our assumptions about who he is or should be for us. And for many, it's not what we expected. I have this running list of quotes in my phone in a, on, a, on a note of like, one, like one-liners that my kids have said that I don't want to forget. I mean, there's just a list of them. They're dynamite. And Lyndon actually has a number of them. Lots of, she has a lot of ink on that page. But at one point during, I don't remember if it was dinner or something, and someone said something in Lyndon in like exclamatory fashion. She goes, this is not what I expected. <laughs> of course, we all laughed and, you know, not what I expected. I think for many of us, if we really are honest with what we assume to be true and what we expect or want to be true about Jesus, that Jesus might actually confront that. Jesus is not an angry God looking for retribution for whatever sins that you've committed. Jesus is not the recipient of divine child abuse and God's like fiery, angry wrath. I think that's a misreading of what the story is doing and saying. Jesus is not a Republican who's for free market economics and small government. He's not a Democrat who's for more social programs and gun control. Jesus will not be co-opted by any agenda or position other than the kingdom of God, which, side note, sometimes our assumptions and our expectations, our hopes and desires line up with the kingdom of God to a degree, and that's to be celebrated, yes, but often they don't, or often they're a little off because the kingdom of God is upside down and it's backwards, and it often works counterintuitive to the way in which we think naturally. It questions the very things we assume. It confronts the kingdoms and assumptions and ideas that we have as natural. And so often, our expectations and assumptions about what God or Jesus should be and is I think could be and would be confronted just like Jesus confronts Peter. Now, I hope he wouldn't say to me, get behind me, Satan. I hope he wouldn't say that to you. But I want to just stop this morning and ask this question of, is there any image or picture of God that you have, any image or picture of Jesus that you have that maybe needs to be held with an open hand and just brought before God to say, whatever is true, let it remain Whatever isn't, send it away. I want one of my favorite pastors you always used to pray. You'd see, pray, God, I pray that you would infuse this message with your kingdom authority, and whatever is said that's of you, may it take root, and whatever isn't, let it just fall off the end of the stage. Is there any image or picture that you have of God or Jesus that you would just hold before the presence of God this morning and say, whatever is true of you, let it remain. Whatever is not, let it go away. Burn it like fire. Immediately, after Peter and his disciples try to push Jesus kind of into their expectations of what the Messiah should do and what he's going to do when he comes back, right? Jesus rebukes them and he makes it really clear about where, about where this goes and how it goes. And if we know anything about the kingdom and what it looks like, we know this. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to die. Because in the kingdom, death always precedes resurrection. Good news, everybody. This is our church growth strategy. 
death and resurrection. If you want to live, you got to die. That's how we're going to fill up the seats that awaken. But there's some really, really bizarre way in which we know this is true. Death always precedes resurrection. As soon as the disciples see Jesus for who he is, he immediately goes right to the heart and center of this Jesus way of life, which is an invitation for things to die so that new things can be born. And it's not just death for death's sake, at the, at the risk of sounding really morbid and depressing. No, it's death for the sake of life. It's death so that new things can grow. There's an invitation for us to exchange things that will eventually lead to death on our own terms so that when they lead to death, we don't get sucked up into them. That's good news, guys. There are things that we, that we naturally gravitate towards that the scriptures would say and wisdom would say. Just take the scriptures off the table for a second. If you don't believe in them, you don't think they're God's word, so be it. Wisdom would say there are certain ways of living that come very naturally to us that always lead to death. And the invitation of the scriptures, the good news of the gospel is exchange them, let them die, invite them to die, usher them to their death so that something new can be born in its place. Come on, good news, friends. That's the illustration, or that's the invitation, I should say. I have little marks on my page that say illustration. That means stories coming next. That's the illustration, guys. No, that's the invitation. Here comes an illustration. Okay. So uh, not too long ago, I, I... I, um, I sometimes listen to my, myself as a, pod, as a podcast, as a discipline to try to get better as a communicator, right? And um, sometimes you hear things if you're able to listen to yourself. And when I first started preaching at Awaken and, and further back, there was a tone, there was an edge that I could hear, still hear when I go back and I listen, and it was rooted and it was, it was connected to a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness that I felt and that I had like deep inside of me about relationships with my dad and some things that had happened. And, there, and it was just present. And if you di- even if you didn't know it, you knew it was there. You could feel it in the room. And it, and it came out because I lived in it. And I experienced this moment in this journey where I felt like God was inviting me into this sort of dark cloud. St. John of the Cross calls it like a cloud of unknowing where I just felt led by God into this dark place. I didn't know, like the desert. Like I didn't know where I was going. I, I knew where I had been, but I had no idea where I was going. And the invitation for me was to let something die so that something else could be born. And for me, it was anger and a lot of bitterness about a particular relationship in my life, to let some of that go and to allow something new to be born and something new to grow in me. And I'm sure I'm the only one in the room who needs that. Who has something in their life that is present that is just eating you up. It's producing nothing but death and poison. And it's just, it's like an IV drip. Sometimes you don't even know it's there, but if, you, if, you're, if you're paying attention and you ask the people around you, I'm sure that they could tell you it's there. Friends, the invitation of the gospel is always let the things that will lead to death anyways die, usher them to their death in exchange for something that leads to life. 
He says in verse 34, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is the way it works. It is the bizarre, upside-down nature of the kingdom. You have to let it all go to get anything in the end. You have to let it die if you want to be reborn. So I just would ask you this morning, what needs to die? Maybe it's doubt. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's just a a low-grade dissatisfaction. Maybe it's really poignant and you know exactly what it is. But there's this beautiful moment in the Gospels when Jesus comes up to a blind guy and he looks him, I, I imagine, he doesn't say this in the text, I imagine Jesus looks him right in the eyes and says, do you want to be healed? And of course we all think like, well, duh, he's blind, yeah. But if you can see, then you're responsible for seeing. If you're healed from something, you're responsible to live in a new way. You're invited to live in a new way. And sometimes, prison and slavery feels more comfortable than freedom. You remember the story of the Exodus? What do you hear again and again and again and again and again from the Israelites? Could we just go back? Not back to like the Hilton. Back to slavery under like the largest regime and oppression that, you want, that humankind had ever known to date. That's what they wanted instead of freedom. So I don't assume that everybody wants to, everyone answers that question the same. That takes a lot of courage to say, you know what? I want to be healed. I want to be free. This, is, this needs to die, and I'm going to actually walk it to its death. And it's so fascinating the way Mark tells this story as we close, as I kind of wrap this up. The transfiguration on top of this mountain is like the, sort of, it's all right there. Notice that he takes him to Caesarea Philippi. Do you recognize those two names, Caesar and Philip? Caesar's the empire, the emperor. Philip is the son of Herod the Great. So you have the symbol of like the global empire and the symbol of the local ruler right there. As if Mark says, on top of a mountain, in front of Caesar and Philip, boom, here it is, Jesus the Messiah, the one true Lord, the one who's come to redeem and save and lead Israel out of slavery and into resurrection. There it is, right there, the whole thing on the mountain. Not in secret, not in a back room, for all to see. I have some science teacher friends and they say that they never tire of watching a kid look at a microscope for the first time. Because it's like, (gasps) right? You think, you know, this is what the world looks like. And then you look through this little thing. It's like, holy smokes, are you kidding me? You know, like you can never see the world the same again. There's so much more out there. It's like bigger and there's more. And I wonder if this moment for Peter and the disciples isn't a bit like that, where they see it all right there. Jesus for who he is, Messiah, son of God, the son of man come to redeem and restore and lead Israel to this new life and now for you and I.
So I guess I would ask you this morning three questions as we move towards the time of silence. I'll invite John and the band to come and we'll sing a couple of songs uh, as a response and to close, but I want to just maybe ask, invite you to consider these three questions. One, who do you say Jesus is? For some in the room, there may be work to do here. And I would invite you to consider that and to do it honestly and authentically. And maybe the answer for you this morning is I have no idea. Or quite frankly, I don't believe it. Okay, fine, welcome. Glad you're here. Stick around. Who do you say Jesus is? One. Two, what expectations or assumptions that you have of God that may need to just be held in front of the presence of God this morning? And then three, what are you holding on to that needs to die? You may have followed Jesus for 40 years of your life, and there is something for you today, this morning, that the Spirit is inviting to die so that something else might be reborn. Let me offer a word of prayer, and then I'll invite you to a time of silence. God, as we uh, consider these things, and like Peter and the disciples who stood on that mountain and saw you for who you were, would you, for us today, be transfigured in our imagination? Would we see you for who you are? And God, I pray for the courage for my brothers and sisters, for me, to see you for who you are, to hold our assumptions about what, you, what we think you ought to be, for you to burn away everything that's not true. And God, for whatever needs to die, whatever doubts or fears or insecurities or addictions or patterns or beliefs about ourselves or stories that we've heard, whatever needs to die this morning, would you just speak it out loud? Would you say it to us so that we know? And in the quietness of the next few moments, may we have the courage to sit with those things, to respond to you and your spirit's movement, I pray. Friends, my brothers, my sisters, so good to be with you. Um, Again, if you need prayer for anything, if you'd like uh, prayer as a blessing over your family, um, please join the prayer team over here on my right, your left, uh, and receive this benediction. May you come to see that death always precedes resurrection. May you let go of all that leads to death now while you can, so that you may experience new life right here, right now and in the life to come. Grace and peace. Love you guys. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakeningcommunity or on Twitter at awakeningcommunity. See you next time.